Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. In our Read Together 2021 plan, we read 1 Peter 1 through 3, one week in chapters 4 and 5, the following week. However, I stopped the previous podcast in chapter 2, verse 17, because we'd already covered a good bit of material. There's some really in-depth material I want to cover here, so I'm putting it in with chapters 4 and 5. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 18. We're talking about what it looks like to live a life of honoring, loving, and respecting other people, God, other believers, and the civic authorities. He talks, first of all, in verses 18 through 25, about what this looks like for people who are enslaved. How do slaves properly honor, revere God and others? Now, this is not an endorsement of slavery. It is a recognition that slavery exists in the world in which they find themselves, and that early believers are powerless to do away with the institution of slavery. He says that slaves must do the right thing, even if their master or boss does not. And he gives them the example of Christ to use. Christ was mistreated, and he didn't deserve it. But he did not return abuse for abuse. He did not lose his faith or behave in ways that were not consistent with who he was. He didn't threaten them. And he left the vindication to God. This passage seems to echo a lot of Isaiah chapter 53, especially verses 4 through 12. He quotes a a lot of that. So take a look at it and see if you don't see it echoed here. As we move into chapter 3, he's now going to apply what a life of honoring, loving, and respecting properly looks like between husbands and wives. This can be a very hot-button topic when we talk about submission and men's authority. And I'm going to ask you to stay with me because I don't believe the picture of dominating or mistreating or abusing or lording it over is the picture of Scripture, and I'm going to tell you why. In verses 1 through 7, he says that Christian wives submit to their husbands, even if their husband is not a believer, Um, that in fact, the way we behave with them may be a witness to them. It may draw them into Christ and at least wanting to know more about their faith and why they have faith in Christ. So because this idea of submission has been used to excuse abuse of women for so long, I went back to the original languages, and the word here in the Greek is hupotazo, comes from that verb, which means to accept the authority of or to be subject to, but specifically to voluntarily place yourself in a place of rank under someone else. The usage would be, I place myself under, I yield to you. So it is an urging for Christian women to yield their thoughts, their opinions, their wishes. They don't always have to be right. They don't have to fight about everything. Everything doesn't have to be contentious. In other words, try to be a little bit agreeable. Um, Let him lead because that was particularly the um, expectation of the culture at the time. 
It is the same verb that is used when the Bible urges us to submit ourselves to God, to yield our will to the will of God. So he then goes on to say, don't strive for beauty. Don't measure yourself by the beauty standards of the world and the culture. Let your beauty be seen primarily through your personality, through your spirit. Be more concerned about being beautiful inside than being beautiful outside. I don't think this means that we can't pay any attention to our appearance. And I think in particular, it's talking about our relationship with our husbands and what we are choosing to invest our time, our money, and our resources in, that we don't just want to be physically attractive to our husbands. We want to be a good life partner, someone we can talk to without always fighting, and someone who he loves us for who we are inside as much as outside. We do what we can to be a lovable, agreeable, good life partner. He then turns to talk about husbands, and he tells the husbands to treat us as the weaker. Now, this too sometimes becomes a trigger point for us because it has been taken to mean that we're less valuable, like we're not as strong um, as men, and therefore they, you know, we can't lead. You got to protect them. Don't let them, you know, they're not as valuable. I I don't think that's at all what it's saying here. He says, I think it's about being the weaker vessel. Yes, there's some physical differences between us. Like I can't lift as much as my husband can. But let me tell you something. I can bear a whole lot more emotional pain. I can do a lot more heavy lifting emotionally than my husband can. So we're we're different. But when he says the weaker vessel, I think it's an implication of something more easily broken, not less valuable. Um, let's take, for instance, if we're talking about drinking vessels. Okay, so there's a good pottery coffee mug. There's also a beautiful, delicate wine glass. That wine glass is more easily broken. I'm going to treat it differently. I'm not going to throw it in the sink. I'm not going to set it down as hard. I may not even run it through the dishwasher because it can break. I'm going to hold it. I'm going to be careful where I sit it. I'm going to try not to knock it over. I treat my coffee mug for my morning coffee. I can treat it a little rougher. It's a little firmer pottery um, thing. And so think of it in terms of not what's valuable, because my coffee mug is incredibly valuable to me first thing in the morning when I'm needing some coffee to wake up, but as just about the ability to break it. And here's why I believe it is saying that. It's because it says that we are heirs. She is also an heir. As a matter of fact, the word being used here is joint heirs. I cannot pronounce the the Greek word that is here, but it basically means equal heirs. You are both equal heirs. You're equal in Christ. So here's what I think it's saying. Don't be harsh and unkind. Don't humiliate her. There is nothing to be gained by breaking her heart or breaking her spirit. In fact, doing so may very well hinder your relationship with her father, who, by the way, also happens to be your father, because you're joint heirs. Um, So it's about the give and take of the relationship, about not humiliating, not fighting, not striving with, but being together facing the world. Okay, verses 8 through 12, those previous situations, like I said, seem to be specific ones that had come up 
among these churches about slavery and husbands and wives and how they're relating. Now he's going to talk in more general terms. Generally, the church embodies the way of Christ, and we should live like Christ taught us to live, and we should model that for one another and for the world. Verses 8 and 9 very much echo the Sermon on the Mount, and verses 10 through 12 very much echo Psalms 34, 12 through 16. In verses 13 through 22, Peter says to us that good is always God's will. So he's talking about what happens when we're suffering. What does God want? When we're suffering for doing the right thing, God is always looking to bring something good out of it and to to do it for our good. In verse 14, take a look at Romans 8, 17, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. Don't fear what they fear. Um, 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. And what Peter seems to be saying is, <clears throat> recognize that they fear you. The people in the world, the people outside the church, they're a little afraid of you because in general, human beings are afraid of what's different. We're suspicious of those who are not like us. Um, they're afraid of you. Don't let their fear make you afraid of them back. Don't become enemies because of their fear. Rather, find a way to try to bridge that gap and help them understand. Especially in verse 15, they're going to ask you why you are the way they are, the way that you are. Why are you so weird? There. Now, their, their question or their accusation may not be gentle, and it may make you want to return word for word to them. But when you answer them, and you should answer them, do it gently. The goal is always peace and persuasion, not conflict and offense. So use this opportunity to bridge the gap, not make the gap wider. In verse 19 is an interesting verse. It's the idea that while Christ was dead, the three days that Christ was in the grave after being crucified and before being resurrected, that he went to the grave, to the place of the dead, and he preached the gospel. Those who were imprisoned by death are set free because Jesus has overcome hell, death, sin, and the grave. And so they have a chance to see and hear the truth. Um, there's a line in the Apostles' Creed that the United Methodists don't say that says he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose and ascended into heaven. We don't say that line, he descended into hell. It's a controversial, much debated topic and idea, but we can see here from the letter of Peter where people get that idea. In verse 21, he gives us another concept. Peter sees the flood from Noah's day as prefiguring baptism. The flood was a way of largely washing away sin from the world. It had become so sinful that we have to wash away, cleanse it. Now, we know that sin still existed because Noah, his three sons, and their wives, the eight people who are saved on the ark, they still have some sin in them. And that sin becomes evident because shortly after getting off the boat, they're already sinning again. Um, but it erased a large part of it. It was a largely washing clean. And so Peter sees baptism as being a way of largely washing us clean, of removing that sin from us, not entirely, but largely, in the same way that a bath 
will remove most of the dirt off your body. You could miss a spot or two. Um, Baptism does that for the soul. So you've been largely cleansed of it. Keep yourselves clean. Don't go rolling in it again. And in verse 22, it says that Jesus is in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. The person at the right hand of a ruler, it's a way of saying they're the next in command. Um, And it says that everything has been made subject to Christ. Everything answers to Jesus now. He was the physical representation of God, and he now sits in that place of authority. It also uses the word heaven, that Jesus is in heaven. Um, It is the same word that we used for space and sky, but it's different. In Scripture, when it is used in the plural, in the heavens, the heavens can mean the sky where the birds are. The heavens can also mean the place where the stars are. When it is singular, it means the abode of God, and here it is singular. So Jesus is with God in the place where God abides. As we move into chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Peter says, We must be willing to suffer for Christ and for others. We live differently. We live with a greater purpose, and sometimes that purpose places us at odds with the world, and we will have to suffer. Um, Your old crowd doesn't understand. They don't get it, and they may even persecute you. Um, And that's unfortunate, but it's reality. In verses 7 through 11, he says that the end is near, or it is at hand. Um, Peter, too, much like Paul, seems to have believed that Jesus would return within their lifetime, that it would be very quickly that the second coming would happen and that the world would be established and operate entirely as God wanted it to and as he created it in creation to do. And so Peter is saying, what we're doing is serious. It matters. The time is short. We have a lot to accomplish in a short amount of time to do it, so take it seriously. And to do so, he says, we have to maintain our love. We have to be consistent with our love, and that love covers a multitude of sins. Um, It's better to be loving and make mistakes than it is to be so focused on getting something right, on being right, and failing to be loving. We're to be hospitable, and we're to be hospitable without complaining. It's one thing to do the right thing, to be kind and loving and hospitable. But if you complain all the time about it, look what I'm having to do, and I'm, then it kind of undermines the whole purpose of it. Getting to know people, investing in their lives, getting to ease their pain or suffering a little bit, building relationships, all of those things are a privilege, not a hardship, and we shouldn't complain about them. We should do them, and we should do them with joy and with love. Serving is an act of stewardship, stewardship of the great grace that God has given to us. Use your spiritual gifts. Use this grace. Love other people. Let it overflow. Um, you do it. You do it for God. Do things in God, whether you're speaking or serving. Do it all because of God. Do it in God. Do it to glorify God. In verses 12 through 19, he returns to this idea of suffering. Suffering is a part of our faith, but we it becomes an act of faith when we're suffering for doing the right thing, 
not suffering for wrongdoing. If you've done something wrong and you suffer because of it, you can't appeal to faith for that. Like if you cheat on your spouse and your spouse leaves you or won't talk to you or you end up going through a separation or you have to go to a counselor, you can't call that suffering for your faith. If you're mean to other people, if you use your faith to beat and bash other people and other people attack you, I see this happen on social media. People go on social media, they take a verse out of context, they say something, they beat other people over the head with it, and other people jump on them for being harsh and mean. They didn't jump on you for being a Christian. They jumped on you for being mean. Um, That's not being persecuted for your faith. You had that coming because of the choices that you made. We are suffering for our faith when we're trying to be humble, faithful, obedient, and loving, and other people treat us mean because of that. Suffering for wrongdoing doesn't glorify Christ. Suffering for being faithful does. In verse 18, um, it cross-referenced that with Proverbs 11.31, and in verse 19, cross-referenced that with 1 Corinthians 11.32. As we move into chapter 5, the last chapter of this book, in chapter in verses 1 through 5, as a leader, Peter speaks to other leaders now. Um, they must often, they must be clear and consistent. They must give a clear and consistent witness to the way of Christ. They're not to be heavy-handed. Um, let people follow you rather than driving them. There are some great memes out now that talk about the difference between a leader and a boss. A leader is out front pulling the team in the right direction. A boss is being pulled by the team while he whips them as they do all the work. No, be the good example. Let people follow you. um, Inspire them rather than um, convict them. Don't get on a power trip and don't let your position go to your head. Leadership is a privilege and a great responsibility. Stay humble and yield to experience. Recognize when others have more experience and more knowledge and yield to that. Verse 5, um, cross-reference it with Proverbs 3.34. In verses 6 through 11, um, Peter knows what the enemy wants to do to us. Remember, he's been on the receiving end of that. At one point, Jesus says to him, Oh, Peter. The enemy wants to sift you, but I've prayed for you that you will stay true. Um, And so Peter says, be careful. I know what the enemy would like to do to you. Don't seek power. Don't seek out position. Bloom wherever it is that God plants you. Um, Take a look at Matthew 23, 12 and Luke 14, 11. Take your cares to God. Don't remain anxious because remaining anxious makes you vulnerable to the enemy trying to give you another way to resolve that anxiety. Take a look at Matthew 6, 25, and then he gives another call to discipline, to be vigilant. Um, And then he reminds them, you're not alone in this. You're not experiencing anything that other believers aren't also experiencing. Others are suffering as well. Um, just know, just know that you're not alone. In verses 12 through 14, he gives his final greetings and benediction. Sylvanus um, has probably helped Peter with the letter, maybe as a secretary or an amanuensis writing it down, perhaps also as a delivery person, but here it really seems to imply secretary. 
And he reminds them that he is writing to encourage them. They need to stand fast in the true faith. He also says, she who is in Babylon. Um, This probably refers to the church or the community of believers in Rome. Rome becomes equated with Babylon, um, the great power that lords it over, as Babylon did to the Old Testament, the Roman Empire is to the New Testament times. He refers to Mark. Mark is probably John Mark that we know from the book of Acts, the cousin of Barnabas, the sometimes co-worker of Paul and certainly a co-worker of Barnabas. Um, he says to greet one another with a kiss. This was had become the traditional Christian greeting where much like the Italians do today, you kiss one another on one or both cheeks. And then he urges peace to all of them. Shalom, peace. May it all be as it should be, and may it be that way among everyone. And with that, Peter's first letter to the believers in five of the provinces of Rome comes to a conclusion.